Education was not simply another part of American society. It was the key that opened the golden door. Education, you learn how to learn. We must trust, we must trust students to learn if given a chance. To learn if given a chance. Welcome to the 180 Days Podcast, where we're going to be talking about all things education, having to do with parents, students, teachers, policy, kind of whatever is happening in the news and what's relevant in the world today. Welcome to the 180 Days Podcast. We are on episode 10. I am one of your hosts, Karen Greenhouse, and we have our other host, Tim Pope, here, who happens to be in California right now, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's a little early, and I'm telling you, you're getting really smooth at that. Like, you have, like, NPR voice going. <laughs> Lots of practice. And I'm in my little uh, sound cave as well. Yeah, I, I have to apologize. I'm sitting in a hotel room, and uh, I didn't get lucky. I got the highway side of the hotel, not the water side of the hotel, so I don't know if we're going to pick up uh, street noise back there. But So today we're going to be talking about special education, and so we have the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which is a federal law authorized in 2004 that basically says that all students who are identified as special education need to have accommodations made so that they are learning in the most appropriate environment for their needs, right? The least restrictive, I think is how they actually put it. So here's your assessment question from a previous podcast, which is... Uh... So why would this be a federal law and not a state law? States states and districts run the school. Why would the feds have IDEA? I mean, I'm assuming it's because it's a federal law because all students have the right to a free and public education. And so the federal law requires that they're getting what they need. It's the state that decides whether or not students have the right to a, a, a public education. Um, once a state decides you have a free education, you have to offer it for all, and that becomes a uh, an access issue, which is like back when we talked about Title IX when we had that podcast. Um, so uh, IDEA, why is this? Why does why special education fall under federal law? Because it falls under the um, auspices of, well, if a state's going to say that by providing a free public education to all students, you have to provide it for all students. And then that's where the federal government gets involved in terms of defining what's for all students. And then specifically, I learned a new acronym. I'd heard the phrase before, but I didn't know it was an acronym. Um, students have a right to FAPE, not to be confused with vaping. <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't want that to be a right. So wait, so what is it? F-F-F-A-P-E. Stands for? Free and, free appropriate, not and. So uh, free appropriate public education. So what is what is a student that's identified as special education or special needs, however we want to talk about it, what what does that mean in the classroom? And I, I had many experiences, but probably one of my favorite was um, I had several years where I had hearing impaired students, so they were deaf, so they had an interpreter in their classroom, in the classroom with me, so everything I said was interpreted by the um, interpreter, obviously, and... I had to make sure I provided the students notes as well because they couldn't necessarily get everything down because they were watching her, right? So they couldn't take notes. So I had to provide those extra notes for them, give them extra time on things because they needed to have the interpreter make sure they explained the directions, those types of things. So that's just one of the many experiences I had. But as a teacher, it was, I couldn't really communicate. So I actually started taking sign language so I could help. But there was a lot of extra work having those special needs students in the classroom. So that's just one of my experiences. There's 
lots of others I co-taught at one point with a special education teacher. So we had students, half the class was basically identified as having special needs, whether it was reading difficulties or hearing impaired or um, cognitive, you know, they couldn't process as fast. So they had, we had two teachers in the room. And so learning how to work together to make sure everyone in the class was getting what they need was an interesting challenge. So was it helpful to have the second teachers? Like I never, I never had that situation. I have to say for me, it was one of the best teaching experiences I had. And I think it's because the the co-teacher and I, we worked as a team. So a lot of times, you know, I've been around the country a lot. A lot of times what happens is the cooperating teacher, it's not the special ed teachers, so they call them the main teacher. I don't know. There's lots of different terms. But that teacher would do everything, and the special ed teacher was almost like an assistant, which is, in my opinion, kind of insulting. So we actually worked as a team. She and I planned together. She would actually teach half the lessons. We would decide which part of the lesson she should teach. And then the students always knew they could go to either one of us. So it didn't a lot of times I think what happens is the special education students who know who they are and everyone else knows who they are only go to the special ed teacher and don't think of the cooperating teacher as their teacher. They just happen to be in the classroom. So for me, I loved it. We taught as a team, but I don't think that's always the experience of many co-teaching. So I never had that experience of having a, a fellow professional in there assisting. Um, I... My, my latest teaching experience was in a school, this is in Texas, when Texas had just gone to Algebra 2 for All, and I was an Algebra 2 teacher. So I had a bulk of students who normally never would have been put into an Algebra 2 class um, in class. And so, I mean, I had maybe 15% of my kids were on some sort of an IEP in a class of 30. Individual education plans. We're going to explain that. IEP. But my biggest thing was honestly time. I I fully believed that for every student in my classroom that I could get them where they needed to go in terms of achieving the learning objectives. It was finding the time to do it because the accommodations, the strategies, that are needed to help uh, struggling learner students with special needs succeed, they take time. Um, And so I might have uh, six kids with those needs in a classroom of 30. And how do you find the time to get those six kids there? Not to mention the fact that you still have 24 other kids sitting in the classroom expecting to learn something. Um, So it was, that was my, my one lasting memory is this idea of, uh, if I could just have more time, I could pull this off. So there's there's a whole evaluation process, you know, uh, of, of identifying students who are needing special education. And that, that can vary from, um, you know, reading problems, processing problems, but even physical and mental problems. Right. Yeah. One of the one of the websites we'll put in the, the notes has a great little summary of the IDEA law and all that comes with it, including in there is a list of, I guess, characteristics that would qualify one for special education services under IDEA. In terms of special ed, it's mostly in terms of specific characteristics that would impair one's ability to, to learn what's needed to be successful in K-12. I mean, there's lots of crossover in terms of physical impairments and learning impairments. But basically, so you talked about your, uh, your, your deaf student that would be that would be here. So uh, visual impairment would also obviously be in the same deal. Autism, um, brain injuries. I'm looking at the list. 
learning disabilities, specified learning disabilities do fall under here. So uh, dyslexic kids. Sure. Um, dysgraphic kids. So someone gets identified, they are determined that they meet the qualifications for special education, and therefore then they are eligible for the services that a special education should provide. So what is a school legally required to provide students who are identified as special education? Well, first of all, they have to actually be diagnosed. And that becomes challenge number one, because schools, um, I mean, unfortunately, and I'm sure we're going to talk more about this as we interweave this through this whole conversation. School, I mean, it's expensive to educate special education students. (laughs) Um, and it's, it's not only expensive to educate special education students, it's not the cheapest thing in the world to diagnose um, and to go th- and to get the tests no. that are required. Because it's like either medical, it's like sometimes medical tests, depending on what you think the disability is, but it's also, what do they call them? Like IQ, memory, all that kind of test too. By a qualified physician type of thing. In, in too many districts, you really have to fight just to get to get the district to provide those services. Yeah. Um, no, that's not true. I don't want to make that a global statement. And even in those districts, because I taught in one, um, it, it is in no way, shape, or form should anything I say, and I, I won't speak for you, um, be taken as a slam against the work of uh, the special education teacher community. I've never met a special ed teacher who would not do whatever it took to help whatever student they needed to help. Um, but the reality is in terms of working through the bureaucracy of a school district, I mean, having access, because a district might only have one person, man or woman, who can do the, who can do the diagnostic testing and there's thousands of students. Um, and so just getting the availability of it. Well, and getting identified, I mean, I know as a teacher, we were often, if you thought a student was having problems, you could recommend that they be looked at by the specialist or whatever. But then that's usually how it often starts is the teachers notice something, but then even parents can bring something, but it's getting that process started. And then once it's started following through and making sure that they're getting that testing or a diagnosis. I mean, I, I know we, I mean, we dealt with it with our oldest child and I mean, we ended up, I mean, we were, were fortunate in the sense that we were able to just, we were able to afford it. Like we just paid and had a private um, d- diagnosis done and then just went to the school with all right here's the diagnosis from a, a certified uh, professional and all right let's figure this out and once you have that then the school is required right exactly At, by law right so once that diagnosis is made then it becomes here's what we have to do we have to set up a IEP individual education plan and those 504 so maybe we should kind of describe them first before we get into like how does how does it fund it that type of thing so i so we talked about idea the law and the idea specifies so students who have a list of one of one or more of a list of characteristics that would impair their ability um, to learn the content and then being provided services around that 504 is a separate law that exists around providing support for students who can't access the learning. So it's a broader scope. Yeah, I was trying to, uh, it, it had something to do with an IEP, you can actually change the curriculum to fit the student's needs, right? So you can give them a different reading level if their problem is in reading. And so they're in eighth grade, but they're not at the eighth grade reading level. They can be getting sixth grade reading. So you've changed the curriculum 
as is part of the IEP, but the 504 is not changing the curriculum. They're still getting the same curriculum, but they're getting accommodations. So maybe they get extra time on the test or they get to go take the test in another room or they get tutoring. So it seemed very like a very kind of obscure line between them, but that was sort of what was defined as the difference. A couple examples, because you're right, there's a lot of overlap. I mean, if you look at the list of uh, um, another link that we're going to give, there's this great document. I actually, actually thank you, Vermont. It was the Vermont Family Network, where they had their uh, their list of characteristics for 504. And the specific thing is now there are, there are characteristics, challenges a student has that doesn't necessarily limit their ability to learn, but it does limit their ability to access it. So, for example... Um, if a student's ADD, attention deficit disorder, thank you. <laughs> See, I said it, and as I was saying it, we're getting better. Um, or ADHD, um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, having ADD doesn't necessarily mean you you can't learn the content or you have a learning challenge, but it does mean that you may need accommodations in order for you to access that learning. Like you might need to stand up or or move around the room, those types of things. Exactly. Um, I, I know my daughter's fifth grade classroom, they have uh, exercise balls that kids sit on instead of, instead of a desk. Where they sit on them, yeah, keeps you from fidgeting. Yeah, that it's supposed to be able to help with that sort of thing. Or sitting in the front of the classroom near the teacher because it'll keep your attention better, those types of things. I remember having students like that, yeah. Um, or even to th- things like a drug or alcohol addiction, that if you're dealing with addiction issues, so you might need to, like... Uh, um, you can't come to school during the regular day, you're in treatment, um, or being around certain students will trigger um, addictive behaviors, and so you, you need uh, modifications that way. So it really, so 504 is really about um, students who have, who have challenges that would keep them from being successful in sort of the standard school environment. Right. I mean, that reminds me, I had I had a couple students who were diabetic and, you know, the classroom rule, no food in the classroom, but they were allowed to have their food and they were allowed to leave the room to check their blood, you know, those types of things. So, which brings us now to the IEP. Now, IEPs, just for the record, technically are specifically for special education students, not 504s. Right. But the process is actually the same because in either case, there's a meeting of all the interested parties. So the teachers, the parents, the administrators, the special education professional that sit down and decide what the what the best accommodations are. Which is typically true, but not legally required for 504s. So IEPs are very structured by law in terms of you have to have an IEP every year and there's a certain group of people that have to be present for an IEP. Right. Um, they have like a parent, a parent guardian has to be present. Um, a special education professional has to be present. A school administrator has to be present. And a regular classroom teacher has to be present. There's my one funny special ed story. So uh, I was teaching at a school, and uh, um, a couple of the special education teachers were good friends of mine. And at that school, so you have the students that have significant cognitive disabilities, students who aren't in the regular classroom. Right at all that are doing life skills classes where school's really about just helping um, prepare these uh, these students um, for some sort of independent living um, as adults. And so there was, the school had one teacher who was certified in both special ed and regular ed. So for those students, she would be the standard 
teacher who would represent the regular classroom teacher in the IEP. Well, she was out one day and they had an IEP scheduled. And so my friend's like, hey, is there any way it's during your conference period? Would you come in and be the regular teacher for this IEP? You don't need to say anything. You don't even know this kid. But we need someone to be in the room to sign the document. Right, because it's the legal requirement. Right. Right. So sure. So I go in there and I, uh, I I've never met this kid in my life. I go in there and it was this poor, this kid's grandmother was the guardian and I introduced myself and I said, I apologize. I'm like, I'm sorry, I know this is weird that I'd be sitting in here, I don't, I've never even met your son. I'm sure he's the sweetest kid in the world. And at which point the whole room erupted in laughter because apparently this kid had a uh, severe emotional disability which made him very violent where they were having to restrain him because he would beat up on teachers and things. So I went in there. Oh no. Exactly. Even the grandmother's like, are you joking? So, okay, so you're in this room, and they just needed your body. So what's happening in these meetings, I guess? Because if they just need your, they just need that educator, why? Like, what is supposed to be happening? In that case, I mean, in that case, that was just sort of because the law said. In theory, the idea with a regular classroom teacher is that for most special education students, um, yeah, I mean, even some students um, who have more profound challenges there is the desire for some mainstreaming. And mainstreaming, for those of you who are not educators, means they're in a regular classroom with all the other students who are not identified as special needs. Exactly. So the theory is that you would want a, a uh, regular classroom teacher there who could speak to opportunities for mainstreaming. I mean, typically, uh, most special education students, by and large, are in some, if not all, typical mainstream classrooms. And so you, the, the regular classroom teacher is someone there who can speak to how the student is doing in that environment and are they able to comprehend the material um, and to have suggestions to uh, what other modifications or changes to the plan need to happen for that student. But once you make something the law, you can't make exceptions and then you have weird stories like mine. But by and large, I mean, that's the idea. So obviously, and then the special education teacher is there who, can, who is a specialist uh, in knowing what modifications would work for that student. Um, the big thing is the administrator needs to be there because following the IEP is law. So you need someone in the room who knows, like, all right, yes, we, uh, you know, we can accommodate that, we will accommodate that, um, and can hold, then hold the school and the district accountable. And I guess that's the big thing right there is whatever's determined in an IEP meeting. So it's actually written down. So this student is going to always sit in the front of the room. They're always going to get extra time for notes. They're going to get copies of your notes. Like there's a lot of very, depending on what the student needs, there's a lot of things that are written down that then become law. And if they're not followed, then the district and the school and the even the teachers, right, are held accountable. Exactly. Um, have you have you had the good fortune of being deposed in a special ed case? You mean where they didn't meet the qualifications? Is that what you mean? Where uh, where a parent filed a complaint and there was a no. hearing. Oh, no, no, because I, I, I always followed l- my l- IEP. Lucky, lucky me, I did. <laughs> oh no. Um, well, it wasn't me personally. It was the school as a whole. The parent felt that the uh, her child's accommodations were being were being widely ignored so it wasn't me personally that was being uh, accused of oh, school in general but the uh so like all the teachers we all got the post right because you all signed the paper right isn't that sort of what it's about well we didn't all sign the iep but we all like basically we were all given so as a as a teacher um, you're given at the beginning of the year a copy of the whatever iep 
um, or 504 plans that your students have with the expectation that you will then provide those accommodations. The services that a special education should provide. So what are what are those services? Whatever they um, whatever they need to be. I mean, they could be accommodations in terms of in the just in the classroom in terms of specific kinds of uh, assessments. Right. Or changing assessments, it could be, like you talked about, having a paraprofessional in the room. It could be having an interpreter. You talked about that as well. It could be self-contained classes. Like, I know I know that was a big thing. Some students were pulled out just for their math class, and they had a special self-contained math class. But then they were in the regular classrooms for other things. So it, it kind of varies depending on what the student needs. That's the idea. And and how the school wants to do it. Like, when I talk, so we didn't have paraprofessionals or co-teachers in the classroom but we had a separate room where kids could be excused from class um, to go to that place and be tutored or retaught. Basically, the students went to the um, special education teachers instead of the special education teachers coming to the mainstream classrooms. Right. So, I mean, there's all sorts of ways. There are all sorts of tools. But now you start getting into the challenge of it, which is who decides what all these tools are. This seems like a, a very expensive endeavor because here's these students who are needing extra services, um, extra time, as you talked about before. And, and as a teacher who also had many students under these things, you know, I had to make sure normally I would teach and I wouldn't have copies of notes because it was coming from my head, right? But I had to make sure if I had students in my room who needed copies of my notes that I actually had notes to give them. Um, this is where you're, the, the discovering algebra and stuff, the, those, Little notes I could give to kids were great um, that were part of the book. Little plug for your company there, Tim. As I said, we call them, we call them condensed lessons available at k12.kendallhunt.com. Thank you. But anyway, so that was very helpful for me when I was teaching from those books is I could just literally use the condensed lessons and give those to the students. But it was very time consuming as a teacher to make sure the accommodations were being met. And I'm sure and very expensive because you have additional teachers. So a student who is in special need has more than one teacher. They have their resource teacher, they have their regular ed teachers. And then there's the potential, as you're just talking about, of, of lawsuits if the IEPs or the 504s are not followed. So where's this funding coming from? Because it just it seems like this could be a very expensive part of public education. So part of the funding does come from the federal government. They do provide once a student for, not for 504s, but for special education students under IDEA. Um, there is part of the IDEA title monies provides a, and I forget, I don't know what the exact dollar amount is anymore, um, but a portion of that, it isn't, it's far from all, sure. but a portion of that money. So there is money from the federal government that comes. And so, which would lead you to think, well, wouldn't the schools want to identify more kids? Well, the problem is when you identify kids, then they receive services, the feds aren't gonna pay the whole thing. So. The, it's a net negative in terms of uh, how much needs to come out of the local budget um, for special education services. And so what's the difference? I think you, you had in one of the things, the cost of, a, of educating a special education student versus a student who's not identified as special education, general education. So in, a, in my research for this, this one, I, I ran across several uh, groups all of whom are asking the same question because apparently just because of the different funding streams and the different ways people allocate and use special education funding and if it's mainstreaming basically there isn't uh, 
there isn't any really good data. There was one group there, the Special Education Expenditure Project did a study, but this was back, I mean, the, the data is from the 1999-2000 school year. The study came out in 2003, and according to them, um, it's about tw double. Uh, the average this per student expenditure for special education is about double what it is for a, uh, a regular education student without modifications. And obviously that varies a lot. I mean, because you have students who are special education students who, uh, like I would say in my last school, they had access to this room of paraprofessionals. So you might have 200 kids and their accommodation was the, co was the cost of uh, three or four paraprofessionals. Um, and then you might have uh, um, one deaf student in your school, but that deaf student requires accommodation. And so now you're paying a full-time translator to go from class to class. Um, and then you have homebound students, students who physically aren't even able to leave their home. And so then you have to go, then uh, you need to provide, provide that accommodation. So, I, I mean, so it says double. Um, and that obviously, but there's so much variance, it's not really a per student, but if you think in terms of how much, uh, I mean, roughly, if you take the number of students in a district special education program, the budget for them is about twice what the budget would be for the same number of students in their regular education program. And so the federal government's only paying a portion of that, which means then the local school and the state school districts are, are funding the rest. Right. And then... And then trying to figure out where to come up with that money, or if you're, or or if you're in the state of Texas, just come up with a plan to incentivize schools to not give kids uh, special education services. Ripped from ripped from today's headlines. This just in: the U.S. Department of Education has announced Texas violated federal law when it comes to educating students with disabilities. After a year-long investigation, the federal government has found that the state of Texas violated federal law in three areas. When it comes to students with disabilities, the state of Texas failed to ensure that a free, appropriate public education was made available to all children with disabilities. And so why would they do that? And I think it all comes back to is once a student is identified and you have to provide the services, how do you get around that? And so maybe explain this Texas thing, because this I don't think it's an isolated incident, maybe, but... It's definitely a very public one right now. Yeah, they're the first one that got busted. And I actually taught in Texas while this was going on. But basically, the state had come up, not that now, the state has not officially taken responsibility and admitted that they did this. Um, but the federal government did an investigation and decided that they did, which was um, the state and the state accountability system Part of a, a school's accountability was getting their special education population below 8.5%. So the number of students below 8.5% that are identified as special education, which is ridiculous. <laughs> How do you give it an arbitrary number? Well, now, the theory at the time, it was not, I mean, the state didn't say, well, we just don't want to pay for it, so stop stop labeling kids special education. Um, even in the South, they're not that crass. It was uh, about the idea of moving students beyond special education, and that it was couched as a, a tool to help grow students. Um, but the reality is, if you have, you don't, you don't grow a kid out of a, a diagnosed uh, learning disability. <laughs> right. I, I mean, that seems 
crazy to me, but okay. <laughs> but so that was the idea. So then it really, so schools were really pressured in terms of, so it wasn't even just a money thing, but in the case of Texas, um, so stall, do whatever you can to uh, uh, keep kids from getting diagnosed so that you wouldn't then be required to provide services. So th- there was an investigation. They got busted. The federal government came, uh, Department of Ed investigated and determined that, in fact, that there was a systematic uh, method um, in the state that was keeping kids from, uh, from their FAPE free appropriate public education. And so the governor came down and gave the state, although this was almost more problematic to me. So the governor came out the day that they came out and gave the gave the state um, two weeks to come up with a plan that would not only solve the problem moving forward, but how are we gonna go back and make sure that we are diagnosing all the students who have been neglected for all these years of this plan. Um, <laughs> two weeks. <laughs> Great that you want to do it. Yeah, it was great that you want to do it right away. But uh, two weeks, it might be a little a little quick for doing it and doing it correctly. But as another, to me, an intriguing controversy around special education. So we've been talking this whole time about um, the struggles and challenges of making sure that every student who has um, unique and special needs gets access to what they need. Well, so now there's controversy on the other end, especially with 504s, because the, with a 504, it's a very open, it's a much looser requirement in terms of how you get 504 services. But it's still a legally, isn't it's still a legally binding document? Because I know that I had, I had to sign things when I got a 504. It's still legally binding. It still has the same force of law. It's just uh, in terms of accessing the services. And um, for example, parents don't have to be involved in a 504 versus they have to be part of an IEP. Like a school could decide, you know, the student needs these services and they could execute that. They're strongly encouraged to involve parents and almost every school does. And I mean, most schools use a very similar, if not identical process for 504 plans as IEPs. Yeah, I mean, the schools I were in, it seemed like the exact same process. But they don't necessarily have to, and they don't have to do it every year. 504, 504 plans only have to be reviewed every three years. But they follow a student. So, and the requirements in terms of uh, the characteristics to be a, to get 504 services are just a lot looser. Um, and for good reason, usually. But then now the controversy is that that's being taken to an extreme and parents are using the 504 to provide accommodations in competitive academic situations. Um, and there are there are members of the community feeling that like basically that the system is getting rigged specifically around the uh, SAT. Oh. Well, so the idea being is that traditionally you're like, all right, so a modification is a, a very typical modification in a regular school would be that the student gets extra time to complete tests. So then it's like, well, what happens then when it's time to take the SAT or an AP test? Which are time tests. And originally that all had to be cleared through the college board. So the hurdles to get those accommodations on those tests um, were quite high. Like you not, not only had to go through your district process, but you had to go through a process with the college board and the college board had to agree that uh, that yes, those that needed to be provided. And the college board is the one who administers the SAT all over the country. So now the, the college board in, in recent years has um, loosened the reins a little bit of that, that and basically are now 
Um, if the school says a kid gets accommodations and then the student gets those accommodations. And so the, the good news is it's made it more accessible and now students who need modifications can, uh, on, the, on those high stakes tests can receive them. Um, but there is a uh, significant portion of the community that now feels that, um, especially for students who are trying to get into Ivy League schools for whom that's a high, very high stakes test, I feel like, all right, now that they're not all competing on the same field and that students are getting an unfair advantage. And I'll tell you, the, when we talked a little bit ago, I mentioned the deposition. Um, and the deposition we got, I, I was actually teaching at a school for, uh, it was a magnet school for gifted and talented students. And the parent really basically, when it, at the end of the day, the parent felt that her daughter was a 4.0 student who should be getting into Princeton and that any, like it, basically if she didn't get an A, it was because we failed to provide the proper modifications. Um, and it was tough because, you know, who knows, like that's an impossible question to answer. Like, I don't know. Like I felt like I was providing that student's modifications as required. Um, so it was, yeah, it was, anyway, there's there's controversy on the other end as well. But there is a whole bunch of legal stuff that goes on to get to that 504. So you would hope that schools and districts are, are kind of aware of that. Exactly. So, I mean, at some point you have to trust the system because the reality is there are many, many dyslexic students who have the ability to uh, perform at a level to go to Harvard. I mean, it's... And it's, it's just a huge gray area, and it's impossible to legislate precisely what needs to happen because we're dealing with human beings. I think, God, this might be a recurring theme of our, our podcast as well, is that, I mean, we're dealing with human beings, so you cannot, like, there is no black and white. There is no, all right, well, this is how special education should work and shouldn't work. I mean, at some point, you have to trust the, the teachers uh, I was trying to avoid system and <laughs> say like, but the people, the te- whether it's teachers, administrators, parents, like there has to be some sort of mutual trust. Now, is there ability to manipulate the system, whether it's the state of Texas manipulating the system um, to deprive people of services or that parent uh, manipulating the system to uh, because they really want their kid to get into Harvard. So they're going to manipulate the system to make sure their kid gets all the extra head start benefits and uh services I was trying to come up with a polite word um, <laughs> so that their kid can go to Harvard because their kid really should go to Harvard yeah and then it's going to happen and I think uh, it's just we just have to do the best we can and acknowledge that and not get too bent out of shape because there's, there's no perfect there's no way to perfect it um, I mean we're in a system uh, and the reality is if you look uh, I mean more and more students are being diagnosed with special education needs um, and meet and falling under the characteristics to uh, receive services under IDEA. And I, I mean, I guess that could be a whole nother podcast as to why we think that's happening. Um, I, I tend to fall under the camp of it's happening because we do a better job of diagnosing, not that we have. I, I don't think it's I don't think it's a deal where like, well, because people are drinking too much or living poor lifestyles now we're we're now giving birth to more special needs kids. I think it's just a... Right. I mean, we're, we're much more aware of right. uh, 
things now, right? So the autism spectrum is one thing that comes to mind. We're much more aware of that, so we're looking for it. So yeah, obviously more people will get identified. So if it's not, uh, so clearly for Texas, it was, I mean, this is me, me, maybe making an assumption. It was the funding issue, right? So if we keep our cap of percent, you know, percent of students who are identified special education students, we're going to use less money, right? But that's not the only reason that special education kind of struggles in schools. Uh, there, there's other things, like you've mentioned time. Well, and it's it's staffing too. I mean, the reality is, I mean, it's special education teachers are hard to come by. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a shortage. There's been a shortage forever. I mean, I think my entire time in the public classroom, it, there was always a shortage of special education teachers. I, uh, my daughter, my daughter in high school, she's a junior this year, and she has decided as of right now that that's what she wants to do. She wants to be a special education teacher. Um, and I told her that, uh, so you're guaranteed to never make a lot of money and you're guaranteed to never be unemployed. And I think that's part of it is, is I think we have a shortage because it is a very demanding job. Because you are, again, everything you do, because you are living under the IEP. That is your job all the time. All your students have an IEP, so everything you do is legally bound, right? Oh, for sure. And you are working with, depending on which specialty you go into, like if you're working with the cognitively impaired, like it is often sometimes physically draining and just you have to really come up with so many different resources. I mean, it's a lot of work to become a special education teacher. I I give them credit. I'm... It, it is a hard job. Right. I mean, for everything you just said, I mean, it's all right. It's I mean, these are you're 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 working with students who by their their nature um, are not um, built to necessarily be successful in a traditional school environment. And like, all right, well, how do we make this work? And then the sheer bureaucracy of it. I my 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 joke that I always say when I talk to do presentations are there are uh, there are two groups of teachers who go straight to heaven regardless of what they do on this earth, and it's middle school teachers and special education teachers. Um, <laughs> and my last name is Pope, and I have a degree in theology, so I say that with a certain amount of moral authority. I'm, I'm just putting that out there. But uh, a lot of it, it's, it's A, the challenge of teaching, but B, the, the sheer bureaucracy of it. Um, the amount of accountability and documentation that you have to do. Oh, sure. So much paperwork. I mean, it's for a good reason. I mean, there needs to be accountability and you need we need to make sure we're protecting these students. But, uh, oh my gosh. I mean, to do that and work with students who, for all the things you're just saying, uh, I mean, it can be physically, emotionally demanding as you're working with students um, who aren't always the most cooperative in terms of... Uh, appreciating and sharing what you see their goals being. And as a special education teacher, you also have to be, what's the word? You have to have so many certifications, right? So you're a special education teacher in high school. You have to be able to support students with social studies issues or reading or math or, you know, dyslexia, whatever. You have to be very, uh, you have to have a lot of certification. And so that'll vary by state. In terms of how much uh, how much content, um, like I know in Texas they had special education teachers who weren't necessarily certified in a content area, they were special education teachers, and then there were other teachers who were who did have both. So I think that that varies by state. Speaking speaking of which, and this is going to come when it comes to the law and what services are provided, 
it's this is another one of these things I feel like we say every time that it like it varies by state um, and one of the links we'll put on the site is I found a, there's a great um, parentscenterhub.org was the website that has a great just a list and you can search for your state and then it had links to uh, websites to find out exactly what services are provided and what you need to do in your state. Because one of the other ways that, in an attempt to make things a little more efficient, one of the other things states have done is they have, especially rural states, is they have regional basically cooperatives where a group of districts will get together to uh, provide um, special education services for students in an area. I know we have that in Iowa. And so these websites have accessed um, links to find out where those places are and how to access those services um, through those sites. So it comes back down to kind of knowing, again, we seem to end a lot of our podcasts this way, but really kind of knowing what is available in your schools and in your state. But really, if you are a parent in particular of, of a student that has special needs, whatever those might be, make sure you know what is out there, what the process is, um, and you know, fight for your student. There's lots of options. Yeah, you're right. And unfortunately, that's the case is that if you really you have to be your student's advocate. And in most districts, the district will support that. I mean, but unfortunately, there are times when you're going to have to uh, you're going to have to be strong and you're going to have to be forceful and know that uh, go into that conversation and not necessarily just roll over to what um, what the district tells you and it doesn't mean the district's wrong and it doesn't mean the district's evil but it does mean that uh, I mean the district has their perspective and it's not the only perspective and as long as you approach them so going back to our who do you complain to um, yeah. as long as you do it in a way that's uh, professional and respectful uh, I mean the district uh, I mean, I, like I said I've never met a special education teacher who wouldn't advocate as strongly as possible for every student that they work with exactly exactly so as usual we're going to provide tons of links for you know information on the IDEA Individuals with Disability Education Act the Parent Hub like lots and lots of resources for those of you who are interested in finding out more and Tim, anything to add to that? So, well, not on that, but now that we're closing, a, another request for our uh, our listeners is we need more reviews on iTunes. We still just have the one nice guy. There's a handful of people that uh, gave us five stars. We have all five star rankings so far. Thank you very much. Yeah, we would love some reviews. I think I think iTunes rates us based on our reviews, and we don't have but the one. Um, so that would be great if some of you out there give us some reviews. And I would also love some suggestions on, on topics you might want to like listen to. Um, we've, we're on, what, our 10th episode now. So we would like to have some suggestions. What do you want to know? What do you want to hear? Who do you want us to talk to? Uh, I enjoy the ones where we've been interviewing people. So I would love to get a couple more interviews in with some folks. Um, so let us know. Give us some reviews. Tell us what you want to hear. We'd love to hear from you. Groovy, groovy. So with that said, I think we're good. So long, farewell. All right. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. There will always be those who scoff at intellectual, who cry out against research, who seek to limit our educational system. The educated citizen knows how much more there is to know. Knowledge is power, more so today than ever before.